This is Running on Fumes, an FC Belvedere Oasis pod. Brought to you by Clorox, the official performance drink of FC Belvedere Oasis. Welcome back to another episode of Running on Fumes, our forwards, backwards spinoff podcast that's hosted at the virtual Highbury. As always, I am joined by the uh, Sancho Panza to my Don Quixote, Dan Fallon. Dan, who has the best dog name in all of, uh, uh, of the world right now? I, I, we talked about it last time, but I want to return to this. This is very important. Uh, young Harvey Elliott, Liverpool FC starlet with his dog, Paisley, named after the legendary Bob Paisley. Um, I, I did some more research, and that's incorrect. Uh, it's actually named after producer Paisley, who was named after the legendary <laughs> Bob Paisley. We're also joined by the, uh, not the Don Quixote of American soccer, but the Johnny Appleseed, Doc Brown, uh, Ted Kaczynski, Che Guevara, uh, Mr. Pivati of American soccer, Peter Wilt, who joins us in a sweatshirt that he pulled out of the attic, and he assures us he does not smell like mothballs which is actually the last time I saw, saw Peter, he did smell like mothballs. So a definite improvement. And Peter sticking with the Don Quixote, uh, uh, trail train of thought, any, any windmill stories for us? Windmill stories? No, I don't think so. You know, I, I, I've got many obsessions. Uh, one of them is water towers. So like when I, when I drive around the Midwest, especially it's something that keeps me, uh, awake while driving is every time you go by a small town, you see their water tower. And sometimes they have interesting sayings, you know, Mount Prospect is where friendliness is a way of life. And uh, (laughs) water tower is as close to an obsession as I get to windmills. Uh, No windmill obsessions. I will say my favorite water tower is no longer because I think they painted over it, but the, uh, the Kakana water tower with the Kakana galloping ghost, which the first time I saw it just looked like a very fat, sweaty ghost. And I, I was on my way to a Packer game and I said, well, why isn't he flying? He's a ghost. Why is he running? He seems to be missing out on kind of the entire point of being a ghost. But I think unfortunately they have, uh, they have either painted over or taken down that water tower. Uh, by the way, this sort of conversation, uh, Dan, you're not on social media, so you did not see, uh, I had a, a, a beverage with my mother on Friday and she said about Peter, you and I, uh, that we are three peas in a pod. We know more shit about shit that nobody cares about than anybody that she's ever met. So, uh, I think our discussion of water towers will fit right into my mother's <laughs> critical observations about this podcast. Uh, before, you know, before we move on, one of the conversations we had going in was, should we have a podcast today or not? Um, you know, and Dan, you, you raised the issue. Thank you for, for doing so. And wanted, you know, to, to turn things over to you um, to explain what you were, your thinking was behind, you know, should we do a podcast or not? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um particularly this week, I was thinking that um, a podcast that by, you know, three white guys that didn't address what was going on in our country would be kind of irrelevant and um, kind of putting our head in the sand. Uh, You know, some people can make the argument that, you know, everybody needs a little bit of escapism and we need to take care of ourselves and and recharge our batteries. And I don't know if people look to us for that. I, 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 would hope I hope not. <laughs> I would think our, I don't know if our podcast is helping anybody relax, um, <laughs> but uh, and I'm sure second, we're putting people to sleep. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And then, uh, then my second point was that if we did do the podcast uh, and we did talk about what was going on, we run the risk of um, you know maybe not addressing the the issues in the correct way or um, being kind of insensitive to the. And again, because we are three white guys doing talking about this. So, um, and I, you know, and, and I, I said that I was interested to hear what both of you had to say. And, um, I will say, I think I appreciated your feedback and I think I've, I've, I, um, without kind of stealing Peter's thunder, 
agree that I think we, we have to, uh, you know, whether, whether what we say is right or wrong, I think we need, people need to be talking about these things and need to kind of, um, I, I think particularly in my case, I, I mean, I support what's, I support the protesters. I support what's going on. I'm against, uh, white supremacy. I'm against fascism. I am against police violence. Um, you're and Antifa. I am Antifa, which um, I thought everyone in America was because every time we get a chance, we fucking brag constantly about taking out the Nazis who were fascists, if anybody needs to remember. So um, uh, so I think we do need, you know, whether we, you know, I might say something today that's wrong or that might upset people. And I hope someone will say something to me and, you know, say, you know, this is what I thought about that and what I thought you said was wrong or it could have been done in a different way. So I think the the opportunity to be vulnerable and the opportunity to say what to say what we think and who we support is important. Um, and, and so I, I have to say that I came from uh, first of all, I think the the fact that we have a choice is, first of all, something that's not often granted right to African-American uh, people in, in our country. And I have to say, I had the most white privilege position of all, which is I had a long, hard day of work and I really didn't want to do the podcast because I wanted to take a nap. Um, so I will be the first one to admit, you know, I operated from a, a, a position of, of privilege there that I was like, oh, I'd rather take a nap, quite frankly. But I think, you know, Peter, you came in with a, a position that you thought it was important for us to do a podcast. Yeah, well, there's several reasons not to do the podcast, not the least of which is I'm not sure we really say anything during these podcasts that people care about. <laughs> uh, and this one there, may be no there was a there was a bigger ex- existential crisis issue there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think there's a valid point that three white men uh, shouldn't be espousing their views on uh, Black Lives Matters and, and pretending like it's. Um, the definitive uh, ideas on it. And I think yesterday, uh, the Blackout Tuesday on social media was wonderful in that the whole idea of it was for white people to shut up and listen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and hopefully it was like all of this Black Lives Matter, it's not just lip service. And hopefully people did um, embrace that opportunity to listen to black perspectives and to digest it and think about it. And, you know, talking to you guys today on whether or not to do it, to me, it's, it's critical that white men especially think about it, talk about it, uh, because, frankly, we're the problem. White men in America are the problem. It's, it's, it's not blacks. They're not the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's us. And until we talk about it, I'll say diagnose it, and, and prescribe uh, cures for it, it it's not going to be fixed. And it, I think having this discussion is really important, uh, especially as it pertains to not just giving lip service to this, but each individual and organization coming up with an action plan on how they're going to be part of the solution. Because, you know, the silence is complicity has become uh, kind of a buzz term this last week. And it's true. So we can't just sit back and say, oh, I'm not racist. We need to have actionable items that we each take on ourselves, even if it's a small thing or a small part of the overall issue. If everyone or a a lot of people uh, take that, take that on, we'll go a long way in improving things. And another thing I want to say is this is different. This protest this last week and demonstrations, it's beyond what uh, the other uh, police brutality protests were. I think this is getting beyond just the police issue, and it's really becoming more of a, a overall civil rights issue, and it's getting people talking and thinking about white privilege, and that is critical to fixing this long term. And yeah, I mean, let's be honest, we're three privileged white dudes, right, in this conversation. And and if we're not, and one of the things that, um, you know, happened on social media, Dan, you're on a blackout, um, but there's a, a woman, and I'm not going to go into the, all the details, who 
you know, public posted. She, she has two personalities. One works for the, the Koch brothers and one is, you know, a soccer fan and she has two separate Twitter handles and she did a big thing on, you know, um, Oh, letting athletes, you know, telling athletes just to be about the sports and this and that. And people came back and said, uh, but aren't you working for the, the Koch brothers? Didn't you work for the Republican party until 2019? Like where's the thing? And one of the things that, that came up to me and, and I had a via our forwards back, what to uh, Twitter handle is sort of an exchange. And I think, um, part of acknowledging and changing the hard part for white guys is it sucks to admit that you sucked, you know, that you did stuff wrong. And that's a universal thing. Um, but it's particularly built into the way that white males operate, right? We're supposed to be in terms of how we were raised, you were supposed to be, you know, the, the front of the front of the line leading the people and not, ever expressing doubt because doubt was weakness. And so I think, you know, part of it is if we get, if we screw up today in this conversation, I hope people call us out. I hope people tell us, Hey, you're an idiot for saying that. And I hope, you know, Dan, you know, uh, and I, Peter, I know you are, but, um, we're, we're strong enough to acknowledge that and say, Hey, yeah, we were wrong and, and we can do better. Yeah. You make a good point that, you know what white privilege is to me it's we're in some way shape or form all born on third base and assume we hit a triple and you've heard that that, that analogy before some of it uh maybe um i'll guess overt but a lot of it is just ingrained in us and we don't realize it and until we examine it and think about all the advantages we've had, uh, largely because of the pigment of our skin, uh, but also because of the socioeconomic part, where we were born, who our parents were, the advantages we had, the, the, the schools we got to. to uh, so there's, there's a few different issues here. One is certainly uh, out and out racism. One is uh, uh, police brutality. But the overarching one to me is this sense of white privilege that denies opportunities for minorities. Uh, well, and, and, you know, and we can talk about this particularly in sports, right? Um, you know, African-Americans are well represented on the fields of play. That particular hurdle got crossed, you know, uh, Starting 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you know, Jack, 60, well, I'm now, I'm operating on 2000. So what, 70 73, years ago now? 73 yeah. 73 years ago. Yeah, 73 <laughs> years ago. I was like, oh, it's 2000, you know, uh, Y2K. Yeah, 50 years ago, um, you know, 73 years ago. But the disparities in people in front offices, in teams that are owners, you know, we talked about, we touched on this last week and we didn't maybe highlight what DeMarcus Beasley is doing in becoming a, a an African-American owner is a huge deal in lower division soccer because there aren't a lot of guys that look like DeMarcus Beasley at the meetings. Well, you know, it's, and um, what I thought interesting about what DeMarcus, you know, now that now I'm kind of reflecting back on his, uh, the interview that he gave where he almost was like apologetic about, his role with that club. Like, Oh, I don't think I know everything. And Oh, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't need to come in at the top. I'm willing to kind of work my way up. And I was thinking to myself, like, that's not something that um, a lot of white players would probably say if they had the money to buy the team and start the club, they would just be like, you know, I'm the president of the team. I don't see, uh, you know, and this isn't a criticism of Landon Donovan, but I, I mean, you know, it's, I don't see him making the same statements about his role with San Diego loyal um, you know, and to me, that's another, you know, and DeMarcus should speak for himself. I, I don't want to speak on his behalf, but that strikes me as a, as a moment where, you know, an African-American man feels like he has to kind of apologize for the, for the, the, um, position he finds himself in because of his own success. Um, and, um, you know, so that, I just wanted to make that comment when I, you know, through that lens. Yeah. Wednesday of this week was a bad day for the NFL. Um, Drew Brees obviously made his absurd comments about the flag and the national anthem that he quickly um, reversed 
<laughs> um, better than any wide receiver reverse I've seen in the NFL. <laughs> and um, uh, Pete Carroll uh, was duplicitous in his uh, Colin Kaepernick comments. But the worst of all to me was uh, Vic F uh, Fangio, the Denver Broncos uh, head coach, who denied that there's racism in the NFL. And then you, you see the charts of the minority representation of the players, the coaches, front office, and CEO president level in the NFL. And it, it, it's incredible. It's, there's not a single minority president or CEO in, in the NFL. And uh, for him to be in denial of that is, is shocking. And that's where there is, uh, I guess to your point, Keith, there's a real shortage and a, a, a miscarriage of justice in sports, and then we can take it to soccer in particular, is in the coaching levels and the front office in terms of minority representation. Well, and I think, look, just looking at soccer in this country, uh, in a lot of ways, and one of the things that hopefully we can talk about is, is some of the efforts that have been led um, and that you've participated in and, and I participated in as well to do this. But soccer in this country is a lily white sport. Let's let's own up to it. Right. Uh, it's played by it was predominantly played by kids like Dan and I who grew up in the suburbs. And, you know, our parents paid thousands of dollars a year for us to be able to travel and advance through the ranks. And, you know, uh, just having that pay to play model that we do in the United States is, you know, antithetical to a truly egalitarian sport in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And, view. and, and I know we're talking about this through the lens of, uh, through the lens of race, but you know, it's also, yeah, it hurts. It hurts poor black kids. It hurts poor Latino kids. It also hurts poor white kids. Like I, you know, I very clearly remember I lived in Shorewood, not far from where for, from where we're talking to Peter right now. I played for the like local Shorewood team, which was not very good. Uh, and there were a few of us on the team who were better than the rest of the kids, let's just say. And two of us were asked to move to Mequon United, which at the time was kind of one of the powerhouse clubs in the suburbs of Milwaukee. Um, I, you know, I was friends with this kid, Ryan. He was a better player than I was. And he is... And, you know, it was, this was unbeknownst to me. I show up for the first training session. Ryan's not there. I come home and ask my parents, why isn't Ryan playing? And they said, oh, his parents couldn't afford it. And I, I was like, oh, oh, okay. Well, and I think I even said to my dad, I was like, he's a better player than me. He should be on this team, not me. <laughs> um, but, you know, so that was the first time I kind of came into contact with the pay-to-play model in the United States. And, you know, and this is before... You know, I'm sure there are maybe there were other kids on the team who were being sponsored by other parents, but I'm sure it was a very one to one kind of, you know, someone finds out about one kid who I'm willing to kind of sponsor him. But there wasn't any sort of and yeah, now we're not even getting into tapping into the players that were in Milwaukee that, you know, that Peter shared an article today about uh, Milwaukee Simba soccer club yeah um you know we're not that's not even bridging that i mean i'm just talking about in shorewood we couldn't figure out how to get a better kid onto a team so um it's pervasive everywhere uh if we're just talking about kind of u.s soccer and 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 just you know kind of cultivating the best players that we have out there regardless of whether they can afford it or not yeah from a player perspective player development standpoint you know inner cities and um, more soccer, better coaching, more training opportunities where the kids are is, is important. You know, we've known that for a long time. Uh, the Simba Soccer Club in Milwaukee, which is uh, the legacy of the Jimmy Banks Inner City Soccer League uh, that I, I helped Jimmy start in 1990, uh, is, is a great example of what the potential is. Uh, Simba's uh, developed several professional players. A uh, huge percentage of their players went on to earn college scholarships and uh, to graduate from high school, who otherwise uh, may not have. And so, and that educational component is such a huge part of the future of the Black Lives Matter movement. White privilege, it, it, I don't know if it starts with, 
but such a huge part of white privilege is the educational opportunities we have. This is not a democratic with a, a, a small D nation uh, in terms of education. And it inordinately negatively affects minorities. Well, and I think as well, you know, one of the things related to this is if you look at the statistics in terms of education going forward and, and participation, and, and we can talk about this, it even, I think, applies across cultures. Um, one of the, the things that people look at that helps educational success is having that involvement in extracurricular activities, whether it is soccer, and obviously we're, by, we're going to advocate for soccer as the educational, you know, the extracurricular activity because we love the sport and we love the game and, and, you know, all of our lives have been tremendously enriched by it. But, you know, it also goes to supporting, you know, cultural activities, bands, you know, supporting uh, artistic expression, you know, figuring out ways that instead of criminalizing uh, graffiti artists, you know, turning them into, you know, uh, John Michael Basquiat, for instance, John Michel Basquiat, you know, figuring out ways that we can get people to, because what it does is those participation in those extracurricular activities, you become part of a community. And I think we're all stronger as human beings when we're, we're parts of a community. Even though I'd rather just retire to my house and live with Paisley, I do think we're, we're stronger as a part of a community. And so using soccer as a way to, to you know, enrich and strengthen the educational component is, is crucial, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I would say, you know, from my own perspective, I mean, soccer has particularly, I would say, since I've been out of college, um, has been one of the primary ways I've learned about the world and learned about different people and learned about different cultures and learned about places I didn't know. And, you know, most of my knowledge of cities and countries around the world is usually tied to a football match or because I, you know, I mean, I, I, I know random cities in Eastern Europe because Liverpool played them in a third round qualifying match, but you, you know, it kind of exposes you to these different opportunities and different people and different cultures. And um, I think it's made me a much more tolerant. Uh, I know some people are going to be laughing right now thinking about me as tolerant, but um, you know, given my on-field anger, which would also be an interesting uh discussion about white privilege some of the shit I've gotten away with on the pitch if my skin color was darker than it is uh would it have been laughed off after the matches oh Dan's just the Irish Irish Italian kid with the temper or would I have been thrown out of off clubs or would I have been you know told to you know behave in a certain way um but yeah so I mean I I totally agree with you know I think we're not I don't think I'm going to get any argument here about soccer being a great window into uh into different cultures and different people. Well, there was an example. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Simba's, uh, Milwaukee Simba SC. And, um, you know, I I think, you know, I I expressed this yesterday before, uh, at least to you, Dan, in a couple of texts, and we had exchanged some other texts. One of my all-time idols is is Jimmy Banks. Um, I can't say, first of all, just as a, he was, to me, one of our own. He was from Milwaukee. I knew I knew the clubs he played for. I played against the clubs he played for. Um, and then what he did after the 90 World Cup and, and, and to come back to Milwaukee to start that, that club that he, didn't, that he didn't feel like he was bigger than, than the city that, that, that brought him up was, to me, a, a model. You know, here's a guy who reached the peak. I mean, he talked about how he was nearly in, in that Simba's SC article near near the you know near tears beyond the pitch hearing the national anthem and for him to come back to Milwaukee and and to give back um in a in a very you know humble and low-key way I mean nobody is going to build a, a statue for you because you started a youth soccer club I I hate to you know uh but I think it made and you'll you look at the guys that are now running Milwaukee Simbassi and I've I've had a little bit of communication because as I expressed on social media, one of my dreams is to do a docu-pod about Simba's because I just think it's such a fantastic organization. It's a model for, um, you know, Millennium Soccer Club here in Madison. Um, but that that Jimmy came back and, and did that means so much. And so um, when, first of all, when JC spoke yesterday, that was that meant more um, to me just because I knew his history in the Boys and Girls Club. Um, and 
his father's history in the Boys and Girls Club. So what I guess I wanted to turn to you, Peter, is to talk a little bit about the origins of the Jimmy Banks soccer league, because not everybody knows that story. I mean, it's something for me that I grew up with. I knew, you know, um, the moment when Eddie Pope came up to him and said, hey, Jimmy, you were an idol to me. I mean, reading that in that article about made me want to cry. Um, and so um, tell, you know, tell us a little bit more about that and the origins of that. It, it actually started before the 90 World Cup. Um, I was with the Milwaukee Wave at the time, uh, kind of running the front office, and we drafted him number one overall in the, M- in the NPSL draft. He was also drafted in the first round by the Kansas City Comets in the MISL draft, but he decided to sign with his hometown uh, team. And uh, he approached me in that first year and told me he wanted to do something in, in the city uh, to give back because that's where he got his start. And so we approached the Children's Outing Association and, um, and he approached uh, the police athletically and actually, um, and then uh, through that, they connected with the Boys and Girls Club. With those three organizations, uh, Robert Bird, the former Marquette um, star of the, the NCAA championship team was the leader of the uh, Boys and Girls Club uh, program at the time. And he was really influential in making this work. It wasn't just a soccer club that Jimmy started. It was an entire inner city soccer league. Mm-hmm. So you had different teams from these different locations. Uh, and then Jimmy would do uh, soccer camps at different locations uh, mostly on the north side of, of Milwaukee, and then in the winter months indoors uh, at these different uh, gymnasiums. And I was able to help him get funding for through some of the Wave sponsors, and including McDonald's. Uh, we had a woman, Katie Harding, who was very committed to uh, soccer in general, but uh, Jimmy's vision in particular. And then uh, it took off from there. Uh, and it, it was Jimmy's commitment to it, uh, his passion for it, his selflessness. And then um, as that article I shared with you uh, talked about, this uh, gentleman, Floyd DeBeau, who worked for the city of Milwaukee and was more aggressive and ambitious <laughs> than maybe the humble and quiet <laughs> Jimmy, uh, kind of uh, took, uh, took the reins and really... Uh, made it into a competitive soccer club. Uh, he ended up working uh, with uh, Lee Holloway, a county supervisor uh, on the program, uh, which helped get the Milwaukee kickers on board. Um, uh, Roger Quindle, another county supervisor who was into soccer, gave some important support of it. Uh, the article, you know, I, I know I shared it with you guys, but if the listeners want to check it out, it's a fascinating. We'll put it up read. on our Twitter feed um, again. It's a fascinating read on uh, the politics of soccer, mm-hmm. the politics of race, uh, the politics of, you can say, social justice in some ways. Uh, and it, it resulted in a break. I don't know if it's like five years where Simba's just didn't exist. And one of their alum, alumnus of uh, Simba's, D. White, who actually went on to play for the Chicago Fire for a little bit while I was there, um, came back to Milwaukee and took it over. Uh, he'd gone to Madison, actually, and then uh, came back to Milwaukee uh, with this as a true mission. And he's done a wonderful job uh, with Simba's uh, till today. And, and you know, that team, that 03, 04, 05 era, um, when they were sort of at their, their, their peak of their powers, I mean, I remember... Um, you know, not living here, but being involved um, with the team or, you know, following the sport and, and they were powers. Paisley agrees. <laughs> Peter, and I'm glad you pointed that. I mean, the what I did, the articles was great. And, um, and also um, indicative of how hard this work is um, and how messy this stuff can be and personalities and politics and money and, and how it, it, you need to have dedicated people willing to work hard. To, it, you know, it's, it's, it's similar to what I think we try to drive home about 
the flock and Keith and I do none of the work, um, but that all of the great, like so much of that work, um, people have to show up and do it and have to be willing to push through the bullshit. And, um, and you're, you know, it, it's just, I, I, you know, as I kind of reflect on the protests and like, you know, what it's going to take for this to keep moving forward. I mean, even an article like that just shows you like how hard this stuff can be and how people, um, you need dedicated people who care. And, and and a big part of it too to keep these things going. And I've I've experienced it, you know, in in doing it. What I'm doing now for Millennium is you've got to put your ego aside in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. and that's really hard. You know, um, there are certain cases where you you, you kind of want to tell people to to take a running leap. Um, you know, that's generally my personality is to tell people to go to hell. <laughs> Um, and in these cases, you got to, you know, put that your ego aside and, and say, you know, I'm going to swallow my pride and, and yep, I'll take care of that for you. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, do that. And that's just with your fellow, you know, the, the people that are on the same team with you, right? <laughs> Never mind the people that are like, oh, why are you, you know, why are you doing this? And, and so, you know, you, what it, you, you have to tip your hat to, to the people that put in the work every day, day in, day out to, to keep these programs going and acknowledge. And, and hopefully we can figure out ways to support those folks that go beyond just monetary support, maybe, you know, figuring out ways to get them the recognition they deserve. Yeah. That article was from Milwaukee magazine, I believe 2013, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and that's, it's a great example of an urban soccer club and all that goes into it. Another topic is Tony Sana and his foundation that uh, he's been running so well in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, with benefits throughout the world, in particular Haiti. He's done a lot of great work there. But I was so impressed by his statement yesterday um, about Black Lives Matter and the role that the Tony Sana Foundation uh, takes in it specifically I was so impressed because of the specificity he gave in the statement about how they as a foundation have fostered the efforts for equal justice for all races and for uh, the future of what their plans are as a foundation to help create more opportunities for minorities, uh, not only in Minnesota, uh, but uh, across the world. And Tony has Wisconsin connections. He, for those who don't, don't know, he started at UW-Milwaukee in his collegiate years. And then um, uh, later with the Milwaukee Rampage. Yeah, Rob played, Chappell, uh, Rob Chappell uh, referred to him as uh, Milwaukee Rampage legend. Uh, uh, Tony I think that's fair. I, I didn't think Milwaukee Rampage were long, around long enough to have legends, but you know. <laughs> I'll give it to him. He he played for the Rampage. You know, he started with the Minnesota Thunder. So in their senior year in high school, uh, Buzz Lagos started this elite amateur team, uh, kind of a combination between the St. Paul Blackhawks and Minneapolis uh, West Side United, and took the best of players of both those clubs and created this super club uh, called Minnesota Thunder. They played as amateurs while they were still in college. And Tony uh, was the first of that group to go professional. But the Minnesota Thunder wasn't in a professional mode yet. And he was offered some money to play professionally for the Rampage. So much to the consternation of Mr. Lagos, and I imagine some of his teammates, he he left that very tight-knit group and went to Milwaukee uh, for one year. And when the Thunder was prepared to go professional in 1994 for the 1995 season, that's when they hired me. I had been working for the Continental Indoor Soccer League. So among my my jobs was to establish a player budget and sign these formerly amateur players to professional contracts, the first professional contracts. Uh, We're we're essentially going to have the exact same roster because – they had won the regular season championship in the USISL last year, playing against professional teams as <laughs> amateurs. Uh, but this time we were going to we were going to pay them and 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 try to make 
a wrong right. If you want to say it was a, a wrong, a lot of them were being paid, weren't being paid in the past because they still had collegiate eligibility left. And they didn't want to ruin that. Well, in putting Peter, that, Peter, Peter, I thought you were about to reveal something there by your sleight yeah. of tongue, where you said that's <laughs> deworming. <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they all work for the Lagos Law Firm LLC. <laughs> all the board, all the board. And then when we put the team together for that first professional season, everyone wanted Tony back, including Tony. Uh, but he had already established his his value by virtue of his contract in Milwaukee. And he rightly so wanted to be paid a, a goodly sum. So it took a while to get his contract terms sorted out. And it wasn't until it may have been just a few days before the season started when we, we, we got uh, the deal done. And um, MLS then came calling. Um, I guess this actually would have been 96 because he missed the 95 season with us. He was not, he was playing for the Milwaukee rampage because he still had the extra contract year to go. So in 96, we will try to get him back. We succeeded. I think it was late April, like April 27th, 28th. We got him signed. And then four days later, Sunil Gulati calls me up and says, yeah, Peter Sunil here. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're going to take Tony uh, we're going to put him in D.C. Uh, with D.C. United. Uh, Bruce uh, thinks he can help them out. This was one month into the history of MLS. <laughs> and D.C., even though they dominated those first two years and arguably in the first four years of MLS, uh, except for 98, where another team may have begun, <laughs> um, they actually got off to a rough start in their first year. And I, I don't think... Bruce was panicking by any means, but he recognized he still needed help. And he knew of Tony and uh, he thought he could be an affordable acquisition for MLS. And the way things worked back then, it wasn't Bruce who called me up or Kevin Payne. It was <laughs> Sunil Gulati working for MLS. As they said, MLS stood back then for more or less Sunil. <laughs> And so I had just signed Tony four days earlier. I had this fresh contract in front of me. Both parties had signed it. Uh, we'd announced it. And I, I said to Sunil, okay, I, I, I'm kind of new to this, but I understand <laughs> that if you have a contract and you want it, you should have to pay us for it. I believe that I believe I believe your next line should have been your next line should have been, hey Sunil, fuck you, pay me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm a little more diplomatic than that. Maybe why I'm still working in soccer and you're not, Dan. Peter, but Peter. <laughs> diplomatic is never a word I would have used to describe Peter Will. <laughs> well, I perhaps should not have been because he did take advantage of me. He, he promised me compensation. He said it would be five figures, low five figures. Said he didn't know right then exactly how much it would be, maybe fifteen or, or, or thousand or so. Uh, but it was really important because they needed to get Tony to DC. He needed to be training with them. They had a game the next weekend. Tony needed to be ready. All I had to do, uh, he was going to fax over a document. I just needed to sign it and send it back to him. And yeah, I know I should not have done it, but Tony wanted to go. Um, Mr. Lagos wanted him to go. Uh, it's the right thing to do for Tony. Um, I did not wait to get the offer in writing from Sunil. And I signed the facts. I signed over the paperwork. And by the way, where this, where this story is going is shedding new light on the, the crime of you hitting him with a, a champagne cork. I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> I found my way to get even back then. <laughs> but I did get even with him uh, and MLS in a different way. Uh, I guess it would be later that same year when he came calling a second time for our other star player, uh, Manuel Lagos. Uh, Manuel had represented the United States at the Olympics in Barcelona in 1992. He was the MVP of the USISL as an amateur player 
in uh, uh, the previous year. And so we all knew he was a valuable commodity and he could have signed with MLS a year prior, but he wanted to help the Thunder get uh, started as a professional team. His dad was coaching and, and co-owner of the team. So he kind of forsake, foresought, forsaked one, one year of his MLS career to, to help the Thunder. But then when uh, MLS came back to me that second year, I, I, I told Sunil, okay, you can have him. But this time I'm not signing the document <laughs> before you offer the terms and we get that signed first. And we increased the compensation to offset much of what we would have gotten for Tony. And I got him to throw in an exhibition game against the LA Galaxy. That exhibition game in Minnesota uh, was held at uh, USA Cup in 1997. And we had an attendance of 12,000 and change. So we ended up doing okay on the back end of that deal. I, what, I, what, I, what I love about this is this is, this is this is like textbook MLS. You're negotiating with the guy from the league office. Where did, where did, where did Manny go? Did New he York. go to LA? New, New York. York. So, so Manny goes to New York and you get a friendly against LA Galaxy <laughs> who, who probably got the call from Sunil and were like, what are you talking about? Like, we can't go to Minnesota. Where, where the hell is Minnesota. I love it. I love it. This is yeah. great. This is great. And and the best part is they scheduled that for late November. In, <laughs> in those, in those LA guys were just so so peeved. Um to to you know tell I know you've you've had a number of conversations. We've talked as well. You know, tell us a little bit more a little bit more about the, what Tony Sana has done in, in Minneapolis as well, because he's made a, a great contribution there. And, it, you know, look, I also think it's kind of a shame that the only guys that we're seeing doing this are African-American players, you know, who are taking the time. Um, you know, there may be other examples that we're overlooking here, but you know, that, that these are the names that are jumping out to us is, is kind of troubling because yeah. lots of guys, you know, should be well, given back. Yeah, Tony's program in particular uh, has anti-racism training that they offer uh, to the community. Uh, they have captain's camps for soccer clubs. Um, they have a Dreamline program uh, that supports uh, uh, teachers of, of, of color. And um, they get very involved in high schools and middle schools. Uh, and this is not just in St. Paul. They, they do it nationwide. And they also offer the services um, uh, worldwide as well. So, uh, you know, Tony, it's, it's not as much soccer uh, like you might think it is. It's more um, uh, overall holistic uh, for uh, minority communities. And, um, you know, th there are more and more programs, you know, we should, should mention for, you know, our six listeners here in the Madison area, um, you know, with Labar 608 and hopefully – you know, it's probably on a pause this summer, but we had a number of flock volunteers who got out and helped out with Amigos in Azul, uh, did camps over the summer at uh, Leopold School, if I remember correctly, um, on the south side of Madison. And we had a number of flock volunteers, and we're going to have Omar on uh, hopefully soon again because they're, he's doing some great stuff as well for uh, with with the e uh, eSports Forward Madison team. They're, they're going to donate some money for goals scored. Um, and, and that sort of thing, but also wanted to, you know, we've been, before everything went nuts, we had been talking to him about coming on the pod and, and promoting some of the stuff that they were doing with, uh, Amigos and Azul on the South side of Madison for doing these camps. So, you know, the opportunities are out there for people to do that work here in Madison, to, to, to go and help and coach and, and do things right here, um, as well. I do want to circle back and talk about opportunities for minorities in front office staffs uh, in sports and in particular in, in soccer. Um, you know, I, 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 for a long time. I'm happy to turn the hosting duties over to Peter because he's running this much better. It was a great transition. I do want to circle back. So you know, we're in, it's your world, Peter. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, getting minorities involved in front office positions uh, should be easier than it is. Um, the, the challenges come from, you know, white privilege is a, a big part of it. Uh, hiring is often done by uh, who you know, either who you know directly or you're taking recommendations from people you know. And if you are in a leadership position in sports or in soccer right now, odds are you're white and odds are you're male. And then odds are your, your network of colleagues is also white and also male. And the people they're going to recommend are also white and also male. So you need to consciously, proactively work to break out of that closed circle to improve the diversity of the front office staff. Uh, the pool, and because of that, the pool of candidates in executive positions is predominantly white and male. And so finding minorities that are qualified from an experience standpoint can limit or eliminate the, the, the choices when you're hiring for high level management positions. The same is not true for entry level positions uh, or maybe coordinator positions. Uh, and certainly it's not true for internships. So when I try to affect diversity in a front office, I try to maximize diversity in the entry level and uh, internship positions, because we, or I can say I, I guess, generally promote from within. So if our intern candidate, uh, internship roster and entry-level uh, position roster is minorities, then they'll get promoted and eventually become the coordinators, the managers, the directors, the presidents, and the CEOs. And it's a way of improving the diversity of uh, the, the, the front office staff. Uh, we also can do a better job, and by we, I think I can do a better job of looking for experienced minorities outside of soccer that have translatable skill sets that can make them equally successful selling soccer as well as selling widgets. Um, so there are ways, actionable items that soccer teams can write down and say, this is our plan to improve diversity in our world. Um, you know, some of those things I just said all sound well and good. And some of it is do as I say, not as I do. I, I didn't have a lot of success, frankly, uh, with, um, racial diversity with Forward Madison. Um, we did have uh, minority hiring with the Chicago Fire, was tremendous, um, both African-American and Latino especially. In um, Indy 11, uh, we had an African-American at a director level position, uh, as well as an intern who went on uh, to get a, a full-time job with the team and has now left the team uh, for an executive position with the PGA. Uh, so that is a real success story. Uh, coaches is another area. I was very proud that Dennis Hamlet, um, was, uh, who is black, was our, our first employee with the Chicago Fire and went on to become uh, one of the first black head coaches in uh, Major League Soccer. Uh, so you know, and then women representation is another area in, in sports and in soccer that uh, there needs to be more progress. Forward Madison has done really well with that. Um, a number of talented women working in their front office. Uh, with the Chicago Red Stars, I was very proud that I hired a, a female general manager and a female head coach, and uh, as well as other women in the front office staff. Uh, NWSL is a league, I think, that can do a much better job uh, proactively hiring women in the coaching ranks and executive ranks. That being said, they have a much better track record hiring women than MLS does. 
I think, you know, there, there are a couple of things that I, I, I would note out that I think could be concrete steps that um, clubs can take uh, to help the, the diversity. One of the, the sort of hidden things of, of advantage of privilege in, in this country is internships, especially unpaid internships. Uh, you know, chances are the kids that can pay to play uh, are also the kids that can afford to work a, an unpaid internship. And I think that is, you know, crucial. I also think clubs and, and leagues as a whole, and I think this is something that USL could definitely do, is take guys that are African-American minorities in general. Um, and while they're playing, you know, soccer players, their whole day is not just training. They have some time, <laughs> right? Um, we've seen it uh, under his own sort of impulses, uh, you know, our captain, uh, went and got his MBA, right? Why doesn't the, the USL with their, their, you know, their franchise fees take some of that and now push and advocate for, hey, we've got smart players on our teams. We should be training them now to be the next generation of you know, executives by sponsoring them for nighttime. Well, nighttime, I don't know, works as well with soccer players, but part-time MBA player programs by, you know, getting them front office training immediately, by inviting them to the league meetings. And those are not super expensive things in, in the cost of things. And to me, that's a bigger deal than if the USL comes out with the right statement right now, is what are we going to see in three weeks from the USL? Absolutely. And then on the coaching side, there's no reason that the teams couldn't and shouldn't, or the league couldn't and shouldn't be funding uh, the coaching license programs for minorities. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and one other point I want to make is having been involved <clears throat> um, in some programs at different places I've worked about, you know, having these exact same conversations that you were, you were kind of touching on Peter about, you know, how do we attract, um, you know, applicants who, who are minorities, who are women, who are not normally represented in the positions that we have. And, um, you know, and again, it's the same thing you said. You, you, you go to your networks and you got to step outside of your own networks. You got to figure out new ways to hire. You got to go to different job fairs. You got to build new relationships with different types of organizations. It's all those things. But then the second piece of that is building a climate within your organization that everybody feels welcome in. And I feel like sports, and I, this, I'm not necessarily talking from my very brief experience working for a club that we all know and love, but um you know, the, the quote unquote locker room talk and the quote unquote, you know, oh, it's just guys kind of thing. I think that culture can start can also be problematic to keeping talented people, whether it be females, minorities who may not feel comfortable in that setting because there's this whole world of kind of let's go, white privilege that has been grown up around the sport that it's, it's very macho. It's very kind of, Oh, come on. We're just joking around with you. You know, that's the, I don't actually mean that. And that that's a problem in society, but I do, I think sports can sometimes become a microcosm of that very male, very white, very, um, you know, kind of, Oh, you're, you're taking things too seriously. And I think some people probably over time are like, you know what? I don't need to fucking deal with this. I can go get a job. Uh, working in the private sector at an organization that's going to be more respectful. Um, so that, that's kind of a blanket statement, I think, for everybody to think about. It's not just about getting people into the organization. Then you have to you actually create a climate that people want to stay and be a part of. Yeah, and I think that also speaks to you know what what we've we've talked about there, and and I think you know we're we're pushing on an hour here, and as much as you know, uh, I think hopefully we've had something of a, a productive conversation. I hope. You know, if people think we miss things, if people think, you know, um, for once we're going to be actually responsive to our listeners, um, you know, we kind of joke about ignoring you. Um, you know, we want to hear from you. Uh, find us on on the on Twitter and, and let us know. And Peter, you're you're on Twitter as well. And people, you know, you're more than willing to engage with fans and, and talk about these issues, you know, going forward. But I think there are concrete things that we should as fans look at our clubs to be pushing with their leagues that they can do um you know in terms of 
getting the next generation or half generation of leadership to look more like the, the teams on the field than it does right now. Um, you know, soccer is, is getting to a point where it's maturing and we know there's enough money swirling around in the, in the coffers that simple steps, you know, the league can make sure that every team has a, a paid internship position for somebody that's, you know, not a, a white dude from the suburbs. I mean, that's a very simple step, you know, that and individual clubs and we can pressure our individual clubs can can push for that at their level and also at the league level, I think. So hopefully people and, and hopefully, you know, people will share with us additional uh, con- concrete steps. But, um, you know, I'm getting the wrap it up box there from, from Paisley. Uh, you know, before we go, any kind of last words from from the two of you? I just want to uh, um, point out that Ford Madison, in my opinion, in, in looking across social media, Ford Madison did amongst the best jobs of sports teams at any sport at any level in terms of being out there early uh, with their statements. Um, as we've noted, you know, right now statements uh, aren't worth a whole lot by themselves. But Ford Madison has always backed up their statements. Uh, and their statements in this case did not seem hollow or meaningless. And I think fans of Ford Madison should be very proud of them. I agree. <clears throat> and I guess the only thing, I, you know, I'll, my kind of, my last thoughts are, you know, for, for other um, people in Madison, white people in particular, I would really encourage you to go to Freedom Inc.'s website and to Urban Triage's website and, um, and read what they're actually asking for and demanding. Um, you know, a lot of this is getting lost. Uh, this isn't a, this isn't a, I'm not going to rail against the media because I, I am actually, uh, I have a lot of respect for the people that are showing the journalists who are going to the protests and writing stories and tweeting about it. They have very difficult jobs at putting themselves on the line to tell these stories. I understand that editors though, sometimes choose how things are, are told and, you know, businesses, you know, I, all this is to say, Go to the source of these people who are who are organizing these protests. Read what they're asking for. I'm not saying you're going to agree with everything that they're asking for, but actually wrestle with why are they asking for that and what does that actually mean? Because I think the problem is like on the surface of it, some of it looks extreme, but it's it's um, it's in reaction to an extreme system that has been um, that's been going on for 400 years and probably longer in a lot of places. So. I would just really encourage people to, to read through what people are and seek out interviews. There's a great interview with Brandy Grayson on, um, on PBS Wisconsin, you know, where it's an opportunity to actually hear from the people who are leading these protests and have been at the front lines of this work for a number of years in our community in particular. Um, and it's an opportunity to hear from them without the filter of somebody else's story. So that's, that's what I would say. Uh, thanks. Thanks guys. Uh, we look, you know, forward to, to hearing from all of you, you know, via any comments that you may have. Um, I really thank you, you both for, I think, you know, pushing me out of my nap and hopefully, you know, we, we push the conversation forward. I would also just, just my, my final point is, uh, vote and make sure you get everybody, you know, to vote as well. Um, what Wisconsin has done and this is my personal hobby horse in terms of restricting the rights of specifically African-American people uh, from voting um, is unconscionable to me. And, you know, if, if every one of us gets one more person, because I think the untold story sometimes, you know, we, we want systematic change, but that's going to take time. And, you know, I don't think we would see the, the you know, the pressure helped. But it also helps that the state attorney general of um, Minnesota is not Karen from Wyzetta. It's Keith Ellison, an African-American man, the first Muslim member of Congress. And so having those people in positions, it hasn't always worked out. I know there's a lot of anger here in Madison about Ishmael Hussein, who didn't bring, you know, didn't bring necessary charges against, um, you know, uh, the the killer of Tony Robinson. Um, But 
you know, the, the, you have to keep getting out and voting. And if voting didn't matter, Republicans wouldn't be working so hard to, to prevent you from voting. Uh, with that note, we say forwards, not backwards, <laughs> upwards, not forwards, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. Fuck Robin Voss.